Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your hosts, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. This special episode of Inside the Firm was brought to you by ArcCat. ArcCat.com is the place to go when the time has come for your firm to begin gathering product and material information for your next project. Let's say you're tasked with finding the top window manufacturers and they need to have CAD, BIM, and specifications. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a search engine that showed you who has the data you need? There is. It's ArcCat.com, the number one most used website for finding building product information. Search for a product or even a CSI section and get a list of manufacturers and the data they offer. Even better, you can download all that technical data for free. You don't even have to register to use ArcCat. Save your firm time, money, and frustration and go to ArcCat.com to start building better content today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. This episode was also brought to you by Dell. As a Dell partner, inside the firm listeners and their firms are eligible for valuable discounts up to an additional 8% off on Dell technology products and services. So what are you waiting for? Visit dell.com forward slash inside the firm. That's dell.com forward slash inside the firm and select the technology you need to fuel your business. You can also call our Dell team at 1-800-757-8442. That's 1-800-757-8442. And your Dell Tech Advisor will assist in placing your order and applying your member discount. Please identify yourself as an Inside the Firm listener and provide your member ID during that call. And don't forget about their partner outreach program that allows Inside the Firm listeners to get complimentary on-site tech consultations from Dell's account executives. You can learn more about the program at dell.com forward slash outreach. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a very special episode of Inside the Firm. I'm here with a uh, former client. We worked together way back in 2013, Mr. Francis Lagasse. Uh, he's the co-founder of and COO of Sevens Home Care, Sevens Residential Memory Care, and Assured Assisted Living. He's a chief curiosity maverick of Mavericks of Senior Living and hosts Challenging the Way We Age podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Lance. Um, yeah, it's been... I can't believe it's almost been six years since we've worked together. Six years, <laughs> yeah. Of. And we, the way we work, everybody, just so everybody knows, is uh, I was Francis's uh, architect for, I think, the first senior living. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So yeah. what have you been doing since then? And that was, so we did a, we, it was a remodel. There was a lot of challenges with that yeah. property, 100% <laughs> yeah. drainage was an issue. Drainage. I know it was your first time. Yeah. Basically being a developer and entrepreneur in that capacity, and that is just like crazy stress. That's an understatement. That stress, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was one of those things that I think looking back on it, we learned a lot that's been really helpful for how we've done our due diligence moving forward. And I think, too, we kind of should have like just knocked the whole thing down and built from scratch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we learned some of those things down the road here that 
it's been helpful for figuring out what we want to go after. So we've looked at some land development um, moving forward and nothing's worked out price-wise because the building costs in Colorado have gone up. Um, and then we did an acquisition of about nine locations in 2017 um, for that smaller model of eight to nine residents, predominantly memory care um, throughout the kind of Denver metro area. And that's been what we've been focusing on is getting that back into our system and, and developing a very efficient operations. When you So this is one thing I wanted to help clarify. And one of the biggest reasons why I want to have you on today is because um, so I'm in an, uh, we're in this, there's a social media group. It's called the Entree Architect Community and assisted facilities and memory care facilities come up a lot now because we have such a large demographic of an aging, aging population. My wife is even interested in getting into this as an entrepreneur. I was actually going to see if you, you would be interested in speaking with her because she, she's an investor. Um, but can you explain the difference in, in any kind of way that, you know, as an owner, what is the difference between memory care and, and just assisted living and the, some of the challenges that come with either or, and can you mix those? Because yeah. that's one thing that comes up a lot when we get approached as architects. So this is, this is the, I think the interesting conversation is that we're seeing there isn't too much now difference between assisted and memory care. The acuity levels are getting so high and I, the last stat I saw was 85% of those moving into assisted living have cognitive issues. And typically, the big negative for memory care is people don't want to be associated with it is they think it's this, oh, it's going to be really bad. You've got six months to live. Like, why do I want to do that? In reality, there's a lot of things that can be done. Typically, your assisted livings are going to be more hands-on care as that level increases. They might not need those reminders like you do for memory because you're not as forgetful. But typically, there is the need for hands-on care at some point for assisted living. Maybe it's a little bit more physical. More physical care. Um, you're still doing able to probably get yourself up a lot of times. You're able to do some reminders. You're not having as much trouble eating. But with memory care, it could be that they don't know how to go through their day. So you're guiding them literally through every part of their day. When to wake up, when to eat, when to do hygiene care, when to go to the bathroom. All those little things that you probably aren't doing in assisted. But because we're seeing such a high acuity now in assisted and memory, there's not a ton of distinction anymore. Um, and so blending those two can be good and bad. I think the challenge is the stigma associated with it. That's the issue. Do you guys blend them or do you guys have separate facilities? Are they all? So because we do eight to nine residents, eight to 12, I should say, we don't have the option to really blend them. We've talked about looking at a different model where you're putting more on a single site. So maybe three or four, 12 beds or 16 beds. And at that point, we'd want to blend them by building. Does that, so 16 beds might yep. be assisted. 16 might be memory. That's how we would blend it to start with to just to see that interaction that can occur. I don't know if living in the exact same house or location would be good out the gate, but I think it is probably something that has to be discussed though. Yeah. I, I, we haven't as, um, so this is Lance. We haven't as architects designed one where we've combined them either. I think what ha what it has changed is when we first got into it was it was memory care only. And now we have seen that where we've had owners come to us and they've, they've, we've looked at land, we've went to pre-application meetings with them and they've done exactly what you just described where they said, Two of them are going to be memory care. Two of them are going to, are going to be assisted facility. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that that is an important distinction. What about from a staffing standpoint? I mean, is one more challenging from the other, or are they both challenging at this point? Because, I mean, the labor market's amazing. I mean, terrible right now because the economy is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so staffing is going to be your key. I think that's one thing that owners that haven't been in the space take for granted is that you're 
staff, your direct care staff is your team. How you treat them, how they treat your residents is what matters. And so you have to get more creative right now in staffing, how you incentivize them outside of their hourly rate. Because everybody, you know, Amazon can pay more. Everybody can pay more than what you can, especially as a smaller operations. So you have to find ways to incentivize them with tuition, housing, whatever it is. The, the challenge, though, is is how do you actually create a welcoming environment for the residents and the staff? And so what happens is as your memory care needs increase, I think you need a lower staffing ratio. We run one caregiver for every four residents because I don't ever want to have to move out a residence because I can't staff accordingly. I will move them out for medical necessity, but I don't want to move them out because of something we're doing poorly because that just disrupts the family, disrupts them. Assisted you can get away with maybe like a one to seven ratio is what I would think if they don't need a lot, a lot of hands on need. But if there's a lot of hands on need, you probably got to be closer to that one to five, one to six, because to me, care model matters more than anything else. I'm not, the building's very important, but to me, how we provide care is what matters. Yeah. That's the, I mean, if, if you had to boil it down to one thing that is maybe the most important, that's probably, probably that, right. And, and the staff and the interaction and, mm-hmm. and then that, spills into the environment. Correct. But let's go back to the to the point about the buildings. Yeah. There's been a you know one of the one of the for the building we did with you there was some hallways that kind of went down I wouldn't say a dead end because there were exits at the end mm. but some other ones that we've had that we've done with other clients where it's sort of a racetrack around Correct. What do you do you have a preference for either one yeah. because there's a lot of, a lot of people have different models, right? So what we've learned from all of our stuff is we want to go a little bit larger so we have a better indoor walking area. Especially with Colorado where we have great weather, but we want more of a circular loop, oval loop. So that's why we want to go to a little bit of a bigger footprint of somewhere between 16 to 18 residents so we can create a better inside engagement opportunity when the weather's not that great. Cuz I'm a firm believer of part of our care model is letting the residents be who they are. Put them first. If they want to walk a thousand steps every hour, let's encourage that. If they don't want to walk and they need some more cueing, let's do that as well too. But I want our design to benefit the residents. So I'm a believer that your building design can either help your care model or it can hurt it. And and so that racetrack idea I think is important to encourage that movement. But that you think that's maybe just segmented to memory only, or do you think it applies to both of them at that point? I mean, because to me, it always seems I've I've obviously walked in some of the mm-hmm. other facilities that have designed, and I, I like them. Obviously, I mean, of course, you yeah. know, um, <laughs> there's been some things that we obviously have changed when there's different design iterations. But that bigger open space, you know, where they have the ability and, and it can be more social, because it, you're living with other people. So there's there's a public, there's a pub, there's a huge public. Um, aspect to those buildings compared to like let's say a, a regular house you know the key here too is that social isolationism is becoming rampant among seniors so I think having those big communal spaces to encourage that engagement amongst themselves is important so I would think that healthy movement healthy activity all that stuff is going to benefit everybody whether it's assisted or memory and that's why I do believe that we have to be a little more creative in our design of senior living. Um, the idea of the two, three, four story resort structures, I think are going to go away because I think we have a large group of the population that doesn't want to age like that. And a stat that really scares me is one in 10 seniors will voluntarily leave their apartment in assisted living. 10% will leave. That means 90% are basically staying in their rooms unless they're getting encouraged to get out. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big number. So then design matters 100%. I mean, the way you are just 
you know, designing the room so that if people got to go, if they got to use the bathroom, if they need to go get a bite to eat, if they're just just a daily routine that sort of subtly uh, encourages them to get out, super important, right? Absolutely. We have to find ways to, one, empower the resident because I believe our philosophy for how we run our model is I believe it's a four-part approach. It's environment, it's engagement, it's nutrition, and it's medication. So, you know, all four of those have to blend together. And if one is skewed in the wrong direction, you're not creating a welcoming environment where they're like, you know what, I want to leave my room today. I'm going to go to the cafe and have a cup of coffee with my neighbor. Or instead, they're like, I'm just going to sit in my room. It's We have to remember that the idea that senior living is this distinct area away from everybody else bothers me because the whole point of what our seniors have done is they built something. They've either worked at a job for 50 years, been entrepreneurs, and now we're saying, well, you can't stay at home, so you have to go to this area over there and live over there. I thought the whole idea of what we want to do as a society is to welcome the newborns in and to properly serve our seniors as they're getting towards And learn from them, right? I mean, the Japanese do such an amazing job about honoring they're elders, and I think we we do the opposite in America. We shun them, like exactly like you said. So there's a Europe. There's some European models that are coming out too. You've probably seen these villages, right? Oh, I love those villages. They're I, cool. They're- we we got approached by one person. They wouldn't do it. I mean, it was, it's literally the th- the problem was the cost prohib- prohibitation at this point, like you talked about earlier. But let's segue into that. How do you um how do you think we need to start rethinking parts of our cities at the very least, if not you know as a as a whole for aging. The initial idea that I have is one, I love those villages, but I would say we need to make senior living the center of the city. Put those that need our assistance in the middle. So my belief would be your memory care, your higher need, highest needs would be at the center of, of the, this community. And then surrounding it, you would begin to dissipate the level of care to where eventually you'd get your standard single families or multifamily, whatever it is. But you'd have your most senior, your most vulnerable, those that have the most that we can learn from at your center core to go back to what's really important. That's honoring what they've done. Because most of us are, are here because of our parents, our grandparents, someone else that has done something to enable us the opportunities we have today. And I think we have to somehow go back to reinventing that. And so my idea would be a, a pseudo village concept where in the middle you'd have some type of 18 bed residential type structures that are memory and assisted around that you'd go into these tiny homes that are 500 to 800 square feet that are that are designed for an independent environment yet have some technology in it that could alert staff in the assisted living that you might need some support. So we're getting away from those four-hour minimums for home care. We're enabling them to be independent longer. We're empowering them with their own property that could appreciate in value, thus enabling them to save money in the beginning and then sell that asset to move into maybe assisted or memory if they ever need that. Yeah, I love it. It's just it's such a more diverse idea. I mean, it's sort of a reflection of life, right? At the end of the day, like nature is diverse. So, so I think if we're trying to reflect that, that's exactly how you interject the whole thing. One thing you mentioned is, um, you know, we're we're here because we're a result of you know something in the past. Talk about how you got into this industry and why. So. So, and for some reason, our side of the family, the women are very strong, which is probably not abnormal. I really started to notice this when I was 27, about 10, almost 11 years ago. My paternal grandfather had, you know, was a 23-year military veteran. He had, you know, early stages of dementia, and they finally believed it was tied to Agent Orange because he did do two tours in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Uh, And then touring Korea, and he lied on his... uh, 
his enlistment application. I actually did a tour in World War II at 16. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Yeah. Wow, he was into he, it. Oh, yeah, but he was very poor in, in Bangor, Maine, and he said instead of diving for lobsters in the cold Atlantic Ocean, his brother was already in the Army. They gave him three square meals a day, and he said, I'm doing it. There you go, yeah. Uh, and so seeing what his life was and kind of the struggles with the VA system and some of the other health issues, you know, it was starting to wake up like, wow, this is we're not doing this the best. Mm-hmm. And then it really became amplified when my grandfather, my maternal grandfather got Parkinson's. He worked for General Motors for 50 years, I want to say. So we retired, I think around 76, 77, about that same time frame, he got the diagnosis of Parkinson's and he didn't take it well at all. He was a smart man. He didn't want any assistance. He knew that this is not any way to live, but because the stigma tied to it. Sure. There's a stigma tied to yep. Parkinson's, a stigma tied to dementia, the stigma tied to these aging issues and that was beginning to be a big wake-up call was seeing the stress of my parents that sandwich generation of my mom especially and going between trying to make sure her dad was okay and her mom and then the kids and the grandkids and just this back and forth and began to be an eye-opener of like hmm we're not really doing this well (laughs) and that was when my first glimpse was like we need to challenge ourselves you know get some younger perspective on things different perspective and you get the best and brightest looking at how we're aging and seeing how we can solve it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, I would say almost all of the owners that we've worked with, it's a story very similar to yours. You know, family influences it from the beginning mm-hmm. and it really hits them, really hits them deep in their heart. And they just feel the power. They just need to do something about it. And so here you are. How many facilities do you have now? We have 10 now. Congratulations. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's been, it must be a whirlwind for you. If you go back to the yeah. very first one, I know you talked yeah. about maybe okay the lesson there was and we've alex and i talk about this in the podcast quite often is like if you're going to demo more than if you have to remodel or affect more than 30 percent of the building just get rid of it yeah just get rid of yeah, that, that's, <laughs> get, that's a great perspective i think that's, i think that's, a third is about the good a yeah. good number for that yeah. but if somebody was if somebody so you know not in colorado maybe outside we have listeners worldwide but in the United States, if somebody else is wanting to get into something like this, because of the reasons you're talking about, mm-hmm. personal reasons, and they really have a deep burning desire to do it, what? How? How do you start? Where do you? Where do you even go? I mean, I know there's conferences, but like if you now that you have some 2020 vision in hindsight, what would you kind of advice would you give to people? One, make sure it's your passion because this is going to. That first way, it's one, an emotional roller coaster because of the connections you make with the residents and it, they become a part of your family. I mean, I still remember the first three residents we moved in and, you know, it was very difficult when they did pass away because I was like, you know, they felt like they were my family because I felt such an obligation to make sure everything we did was done right for them because someone trusted me and our team mm-hmm. to take care of their best friend. And that's something I never want our team to ever forget is that we have the greatest honor and that's taking care of someone's best friend. And if we ever lose that, I don't care how much money we make, we're not doing it for the right reasons. That's number one. Number two is find some mentors that want to kind of coach. Don't be afraid to ask people. I mean, the conferences are good, but you've got to find those people that are willing to kind of troubleshoot some of those challenges that you're going to face with zoning issues, with licensing issues. Because that's the biggest thing that I've learned. We've been fortunate is now I've been able to do all of our policy procedures. I understand the licensing process, but it's, it can be daunting if you don't know what you're doing. Is that what you did? Did you look for a mentor right away for the licensing or did you just dive in? We just dove in. We were, tw- we were 26 and 7, so we weren't probably... Just, the, just brave and dumb enough we to do were it. Dumb, yep, it. brave I and dumb enough. <laughs> and 
Uh, we got we got knocked around the first time. You know, the state was really helpful in Colorado, the health department, to kind of guide us as to, hey, this is, you know, you guys are close, but change these. And so we dove in, especially with our home care company, we just dove in and started doing the policy procedures and we worked with the health department. We got that all sorted out and it went well. And then we kind of just kept refining it and staying up with all the changes in the licensing and all the changes nationally that were occurring. But we were just dumb and dumb enough at that point, honestly, <laughs> to not know any better, quite frankly. Yeah. Because when we got into it about 10 years ago, we were the youngest owner operators by, I want to say, almost 20 years. I believe it 100%. Absolutely. And, and we didn't really know who to even reach out to at that and point. And do you think about 10 years ago it was to, um, like, is this when the field really emerged? And, you know, is this when there all these all these sort of typologies started coming in? And the typology I'm describing, just so everybody knows, is like, you're finding a single family home or something or, or a commercial property, but not a large scale. I mean, the biggest ones we've done so far is about an acre. The ones where we've done that are over an acre haven't got built. And it's just because of the construction costs have gotten too out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the labor market sucks and all the, all these <laughs> things. Right. But you know, for that typology, like how did you, uh, do you think that's when it started or, or am I missing the boat here? I think about five years ago. And I honestly think it's state by state. Like I've looked at some states like Nebraska and Iowa, this idea of the residential care home isn't very popular. It's not popular. You know, even, you know, California has a lot and they're, I think closer to six units statewide, I believe. And then you can get some other things to scale them up. Where it's like six bedrooms. Six residents only. So oh, wow. Even, I, I believe I'm, if I'm going off like Texas <laughs> is starting to see a lot more, but Texas you're starting to see with some of the land there, you know, 12 to 20, you know, in, 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 a, in a residential house. Um, like Michigan where I grew up, far and few between these type of models. Um, so I think it's still kind of sporadic. Colorado definitely it seems like it's leading with the number of these residential type or residential-esque assisted living facilities. Uh, I do believe that you're going to start seeing these really excel for your memory care because you can build them a little less expensive. You can charge less. You can have better staffing ratios, which I think is going to begin to have a positive impact on that group. Um, but yeah, I don't see it nationally quite as blown up yet. Yeah. But five years ago is when I started to notice more franchises coming in with like home care companies. Yep. Um, there's still not a bunch of these um, franchises for the residential care models. There's only, I think, one really that's out there that I know of, but they're not jumping up yet. And I don't know if it's because you do need to have the expertise now. You're, you know, the acuity levels are higher, so you need to have a clinical expertise to you know, assist with the care model. Yeah, and even the state licensing board here, I know when my wife was looking into it, I think they, you know, she, she had worked in some... Um, some group homes and some assisted facilities, you know, a long time ago. And they wanted to see a, a proven track record of you know what you're doing. Correct. For sure. Was it always like that when you got no. in there? Or was it a little bit more lenient, wasn't it's it? It's very lenient. They did a whole rewrite of the regulations that took effect in June of 2018. Okay. That they started tightening a lot of this up because there were some questionable operators that sure. they shut down. People just looking to make a quick buck. That is one of the things I've seen. There have we, And we've <sighs> never worked with one of those operators. It scares um, me. It scares yeah, me. it is scary. Like you said, you're, those people are trusting you, man, and they're fragile. You know, they're strong, but they're fragile at the same time. I mean, that's- and I get so upset about that because my biggest competition is not another group home or even another facility. It's someone that reads about a group home that did something below board that got shut down, that did something that 
wasn't good. Mm-hmm. Then they associate us all as the same type of company. And it's very frustrating when you're working your tail off to build your care model, put that first. And then all of a sudden you have this person who's like, what's well, it's a real estate transaction. I'm going to own the real estate and fill some beds. Oh, it's so much more difficult than that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And that's brought it, you know, the group that we talked to is real estate investors seem to want to talk to us as operators a lot more, but they're, don't understand that operational component, which makes it hard for us to explain the importance of operation. It's not just building a facility. You're building a facility that's a house that has caregivers, that has care needs, that has doctors that need to come in there. There's so many different facets to it, which is why. And every operator has their little, their all of their all of the little particular things that they want to do right like some people that we design for they have they want an alcove for a hair salon correct it's very important for that mm-hmm. that these people can go in and they like some some of their some of their patients not patients but um uh some of the some of the people that they have come into their come into their homes and live there they're very important to them that they that they look nice and they're dressed good for them but yeah, you know there's all those little tiny things the med carts where those go yep and i think too with the design aspect if we're not i think we get too comfortable with our design though I would argue that we have to be challenging ourselves to continually improve our design as we change with the generation that ages. Mm -hmm. And that's part I think that's often overlooked is a lot of our competitors, they get set in their design way because they're used to it, it's efficient, whatever. But I don't always believe that that's what this next generation wants to age. My personal philosophy is everything we have built today for seniors is already outdated. Amazing. When do you, how do you, how do you, do you have any methods or techniques that you're trying to think of or develop where you just try to get these information pulled ahead of time? Yeah, that would, that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's kind of, you know, why I started the challenging you, the way you, the challenging the way we age podcast was to have conversations with these fringe people that are Mm -hmm. very creative, very innovative. Um, having those conversations, trying to talk to these generate people in their 50s and 60s now, understanding how they might want to age in 10 years. But what I'm finding is we're not having these conversations until it's too late. We're not having them until there's a crisis that like, I know I need assisted living, but I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. What are my options? Well, that's really your only option. Yeah. You know, so it's trying to encourage people that talking about aging isn't a negative. It doesn't mean you're going to have a negative consequence tomorrow. It's going to only help us build models that benefit everybody. And we need to start talking when we're in our 30s, our 40s, our 50s. It's not, we're all aging. And I believe that it's a luxury to get older. God willing, if we all can get to our 80s, that's amazing. Because some many people don't have that luxury. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a negative to get older. It's an absolute positive. So we, I want that input from someone in their 40s or someone in their 50s. Like, I would love this. Hmm. Maybe we can try to incorporate that, you know, down the road. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's no one really wants to seem to have those conversations yet. Yeah. So you've thrown out some numbers too in this conversation, and I want to kind of hit on that too, yeah. of because I think that's a educational point for people mm-hmm. is, you know, eight beds versus sixteen beds. Mm-hmm. One, what is the challenge? What um, obviously there's a staffing challenge with mm-hmm. that, a design challenge with that. But what does it mean for licensing and uh, uh, you know facilities management? Because I know you. As soon as you get past 16 beds, it's sort of an institutional um, right. classification on the IBC. Yeah, I think it's 18. I think it's 18 is the max before it really gets goofy. But 16 is another threshold. And mm-hmm. 18 changes. I think 20 changes to commercial kitchen in Colorado, I believe. Um, a lot of... And then also, too, at now in Colorado with the new regulations, I believe 10 or more falls under the FGI guidelines. What is that, FGI? Um, it's a great question. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's the architect. It's the um, 
I'll have to look that up. Say it again. You said FGI? FGI standards okay. for design. Okay. Of, of, and I think it's starting to push under the hospitals, hospital design, the layout of how you have to do your bathrooms, your hallway width. Some of that stuff is beginning to change in Colorado. Facilities Guidelines Institute. Yes, there you. you go. .org if you want to yeah. look it up. Um, thank you. I've, You're welcome. Because <laughs> uh, I've read it a lot of times because that's kind of that threshold of do you want to go above 10? Because does that increase your building costs? And is that building cost then going to affect what you can charge to your seniors? Because we're seeing more seniors that can't afford as much as they could before. Um, it's really trying to figure out how you maximize your, your quality of care while keeping your costs affordable. Because I believe that cost is going to be the most interesting aspect we have to consider. And it's going to be the most challenging aspect of how we charge our seniors. Yeah, for sure. How do you... So, I mean... When, when you did your first project, did you have a pro forma that you pulled from somebody else? Or did you, again, is this all making it up in your own? No, we used our pro forma. We had rough ideas from doing some due diligence and calling around other facilities. We based a lot of it off of what we were charging for our home care company. Okay. We knew that we wanted to be about a third less than what a 24-hour case was for home care. Um, 24-7, 365 mm -hmm. case. And so that's where we kind of started. We ended up realizing that we were fairly close um, but what we didn't anticipate, though, was the acceleration that we had to have for some of our rates now that we're seeing such high wage increases. Because, you know, in Denver... With staffing. With staffing. Yeah, yeah. wage increase with staffing. That's kind of really been the one we've had to do the most adjusting. Because even though now minimum wage is eleven ten, we're somewhere about 4 5 $6 higher an hour just to keep good staff. Absolutely. And so the idea that we're going to jump to minimum wage at 15 in Denver, they had that new talk. It's not affecting us because we're already above that. Yeah. What so, if, so just to catch everybody up, Denver City Council is is proposing and considering fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a little <laughs> mind boggling because we've already we're jumping up ninety cents in the state every year. Yeah. And now all of a sudden they want to add an extra three bucks or a dollar fifty in twenty twenty than a dollar fifty in twenty twenty one. It hurts the home care more than anything else. Exactly. It, it always gets passed on to the consumer. And the person who's having the getting the service they need, it doesn't matter if it's a burger, doesn't matter if it's Correct. somebody washing your car. That's just basic economics, right? Yeah. And the problem is that with our seniors, they're typically on fixed incomes. Yep. You and I can go out and try to make more money, right? Yep. Someone that's living on their retirement, they might be lucky if they get a 3% cost of living increase. And so yet we're now jumping minimum wage up by 30, 40%. I don't think that we've thought through the unintended consequences. Speaking, so, you know, that sort of segues into sort of government regulation. And mm -hmm. I think every time, you know, if you're if you're an entrepreneur, you know that government gets in the way. <laughs> and that's just the that's just the reality of the situation. Yes, is there any is there anything is there any like if you could just wave your wave a magic wand mm -hmm. and there's one big thing you could get government out of the way in terms of this industry to help facilitate lower costs and more availability for this? What, what would it be? I mean, would it just be flexibility and zoning? Because that's one of the things I see. My big thing would be flexibility and zoning. Um, I like the regulations that we're coming into now. I like some of the rules changes for the regulations for the health department because it's preventing people from just getting in here to make a quick buck. Mm -hmm. it's, it's putting a barrier to entry outside of just being able to build a, a piece of a piece of real estate. And, and at the end of the day, I think what that is, is that protects the people. Correct. You know, at, Correct. that's what we're looking at. You know, you're protecting individuals from getting from getting hurt. The biggest issue I have, though, is is the zoning issues, is, is having to fight to rezone properties that would make total sense to, to have seniors living there because it makes them part of the community. I hate this idea. The stigma. The stigma that because you're, you're an elder that you need assistance, you have to move out of your neighborhood. That just 
boggles my mind that you might have been in that neighborhood for 50 years, but because assisted livings aren't permitted in that neighborhood, you've got to go three miles away and be off the corner of I-25 and something. Why? I don't know. Why? I blame Ace Ventura, too. That movie with where yeah. he's in the institute. I'm serious. Yeah. I actually I actually think there's a stigma. That's what we've noticed when we went into when we when we went into planning and zoning meetings for the pre applications with okay. other owners is is this a mental institute? No, this isn't a mental institute. This is a this is a an assisted facility or mental or or a memory care facility for people. And then we describe the whole thing and it calms the whole situation down. But they instantly think we're bringing in literally a hospital. And I, that's not mm. what we're bringing in. And we've, you know, we'll show them elevations where mm-hmm. it's a residential facility. We're saying, look, do you, I mean, this is going to be property taxes for you. What are you yeah. complaining about? Yeah. A lot of property yeah. taxes. And that's what Lakewood, I mean, I know the difference in our property tax once we completed the building was significant for Lakewood. Yeah. And I mean, Especially I guess. in the area where you built. Exactly where we built. Yeah. Over off of uh, right near, um, what is it? Right near uh, Colorado Mills Mall. Mm-hmm. And it was very helpful that the city at that point in 2013 needed tax revenue. They were coming out of that recession yep. still. And I guess that kind of reminds me too of the Happy Gilmore, right? Where um, yeah, gra- grandma's, there, there you go. grandma's in the uh, the nursing home and they have that weird custodian there mm-hmm. and, and then he busts her out and moves her back home. I mean, I truly believe that everybody would love to stay at home. But when you're starting to see wages and hourly rates for home care get 30, 35 an hour. Wow. Who can afford that? So we need to have alternative affordable solutions that honor that desire to stay at home, but offer um, just affordability, period. Well, this is a good segue then. So one of the things that has made all of our lives easier and better and for us to be able to do more things, right, is technology. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we like to talk about on this podcast is automation, especially in the building industry. Like, oh man, instead of me hanging cabinets today... I would love it if a robot would hang cabinets. I love that idea too. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think automation could help with this in any way? I think one of the you mentioned about the if we if we if we made villages, right? Mm-hmm. You could have you know technology yeah. interfere with that. I think there's ways, especially. I think we're going to be the slowest sector to get hit by automation. I think AI is going to be very critical for analytics to predictive movement, predictive behavior to be more predictive in our healthcare. You know, um, I think automation is going to be very helpful though in food delivery. Mm. You know, take that off medication delivery take that off medication management if we could set up a management system that's more automated so someone could stay in their home because they don't have to be reminded to take the pill the pill dispensing box does it for them there's there's a camera or some way to track that it was actually ingested and can report back i think we're going to begin to see more virtual monitoring to keep people at home on like a subscription model where it's 100 to 150 dollars a month versus four grand so you're going to see some of those things begin to automate with like medications, reminders, telehealth. Telehealth, I think, is going to be really big for our seniors, especially in the rural areas, be able to keep them at home longer. So my belief is the only way we can attack the affordability issue is we need our seniors to spend less early on, not moving into a very expensive independent living where you're four or five grand a month, mm-hmm. but somewhere maybe you're spending a thousand, getting what you need when you need it. That way you have funds available if you ever need you know, enhanced assisted living, memory care, nursing care. You have funds available. My biggest complaint is you're spending four or $5,000 on things you're not using 
or you're getting stuck with the home care minimum of four hour visit at $30 an hour. Well, I don't have four hours of work. So I'm the caregiver sitting around for three hours and I'm paying for nothing. Mm -hmm. So you're losing money there. So we got to find ways to automate it so they can only spend what they need when they need it, not force these minimums. Yeah, exactly. A little bit more nimble and Correct. service-based thing, right? Yes. Sort of like the Uber of yeah. of, of, of assistive facilities. Absolutely. Centers. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key, I believe, is the first step. And then I do think you're going to see robots get involved with um, lift assist down the road here. That's going to be the first step to reduce the workers' comp likelihood of injury for a staff member on a transfer to help make that aspect easier. Mm-hmm. Um, very cool. No, I'm, I'm, a lot of people get freaked out about the future and AI and, you know, you've got people like Andrew Yang, uh, <laughs> you know, worried about the UBI and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, which, which is cool. I, yeah. I've interviewed Andrew Yang. I, I like the guy. He's a very intelligent man. Um, but you know, to me, I embrace it. Right. And yes. I'm ready for the drywall hanger robots or whatever it be in your industry. That would be awesome because that'd keep our cost. See that the things that can come in construction would help keep our cost down. If I can build for less, I can charge less. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to get to is I can build faster maybe. So my time isn't my, my sunk costs aren't as for 18 months, they're 12 months. Exactly. The interest. You know? And that's a lot of things people to forget about, right? Correct. Is carrying and that kind carrying of Carrying costs for land that I can't develop because I need six months to rezone it. I mean, that just pisses me off quite frankly <laughs> because we're also then holding up a group of seniors that might need our services because we have to go through the hoops to rezone something that shouldn't be that difficult to rezone and i think we have to have these conversations that we're having now to get rid of that nimbyism not in my backyard yep exactly and and really peel back the onion and help people understand it's not the kind of movie style right. institutions that fred francis and right. i just mentioned in jest um yeah. so how about this um I know, you know, there's a lot of architects listening to this podcast. There's some developers and some entrepreneurs and, and contractors too. Um, but let's start with the architects. If you wanted to get into this specialty design field, and I encourage everybody to do it. I think number one, it's, it's a, it's a feel good typology. At the end of the day, if you do a great job, you have created, you have created um, a great space for people to finish their lives out in beauty and, and in grace. You made a legacy project. Absolutely. What more can you project. say about that? Yep. And so, and so we're, um, we, we do at least one a year. I'm very proud of those projects oh, yeah. that we do. And, um, but then they, they are also good cash generators too. And they, you know, those are higher level projects Correct. because there's a higher level of care that's necessary. ADA, um, there's a lot more code you got to deal with mm -hmm. and everything. And it's, I wouldn't say it's a recession proof model for sure, but it's definitely one of those where compared to maybe a, if you're building houses for one percenters all day long, <laughs> right? Yeah. this one is for sure um, a little bit more stable. Yes. So, but as an owner, Francis, what kind of, what kind of um, if, if an architect was to approach you or if, if they really wanted to get into it, like what are you looking for for somebody? Where I am now, what I've learned over the last 10 years is I want someone that's going to challenge my creativity. Be like, hey, you know, I've seen this before in whatever, the Netherlands. Could we put a twist on it to make it applicable applicable here mm -hmm. you know challenge what we think we know because what i love what i've learned is getting people from outside senior living that have different ways of thinking and looking at things we're going to build a heck of a better project and i think you need to find people that want to be open to creative solutions because i again i'll go back to what i said i don't believe what we're building today is going to be relevant in 10 years. I think it's going to be what we're stuck with, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's the best thing we can be doing. 
Mm-hmm. And so I say, bring your creativity. Find those operators, those owners, those developers that want to push the envelope. It is a harsh reality. I love, I love that you are that harsh about it and real about it because that's, I don't think a lot of people would want to face that because in a sense, you're sort of saying, I mean, what we're building is, I wouldn't say wrong, but it's not ideal to, you know, it's not, it's, we can't, we're not predicting the future. It's not timeless. How about that? But Maybe that's the word. I think that's a great word because <laughs> my, what keeps my concern up is, are we doing enough? And I never want to get complacent because we're, again, taking care of people. The minute complacency sets in, we're going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. We're going to become assuming that, oh, this design is perfect. No, it's not because we're not perfect as people and everybody is going to have a different nuance that they like or don't like. So I would love an architect that says, you know what? We've seen this model elsewhere. What if we did this in this segment? Oh, cool. Let's let's put on paper and model it, you know? Push the envelope. Don't be afraid that don't listen to someone that says it can't be done because I think we need those people that want to do that. And we need people that do things that can't be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And that's I think that's an architect's job is to yeah. push the envelope like that. But you also do need an owner like you that wants that. That's one thing I've noticed oh, is true. Like okay. the best architecture really it doesn't come from I, I think you need a good contractor to execute it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you do need a really good owner and an architect coming together and going like we want to create something. We want not something that hasn't been done before but that pushes the envelope Correct. and and and, and sort of, you know, lifts the whole project up. Correct. Um, let's segue into uh, entrepreneurs then. So, well, I already kind of talked about that. How about, how about we'll kind of um, go to contractors? Yeah. What are you looking for for a contractor that wants to build your facilities? Reliability. Reliability and relationship with subcontractors. That's one thing that I've learned is the relationship, the, contra- the general contractor is only as good as his relationship with their subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize how important that was until I was in the middle of our project. <laughs> and that was 13 years, or not, or what, seven, six years ago six now? Six years ago. Um, and it's only gotten worse with you know the relationship between general contractors and subcontractors. And then also the understanding of bringing them in earlier on in the the design process mm-hmm. to understand what is their capability. Don't promise me something that can't you can't build. Work with us to, if we have to value engineer it because it makes more sense or we have to do something. Let me know sooner, not right before we're going to build it. Oh, I got to tell you that's a pet peeve of mine too. Even so, you know, and you and I were chit-chatting a little bit before we we started hit, hitting the record button and I was telling you about how we've moved into architect developer contractor. Right. And wearing the contractor hat and Having these sub, a lot of these subs, not all of them. We have really good subs. We ha- we're trying to build those kind of relationships you're talking about. But for them to, the minute I'm not joking, the minute or the day before, finally look at that and go, oh, why didn't you do it like this? Or 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 we can't build it like this? Or just have this giant problem? It kind of it blows my mind. But I think part of that, half of that, falls on me for not sitting down with them mm. multiple times. And making sure that they understand, like this is how we're this is how, this is what we're proposing to do. Here's how we're going to do it. If you have any feedback, if you if you have a better way, great. But we need to identify this weeks, months, you know, maybe even a year out, and really understand what's going on because those kind of fires, when you're already seeing all the interest and everything build up and the carryover, it's just mind blowing. Yeah, it, it it does, and those are the things that as a basically the greenest developer that could ever have existed back in 2013. 
Uh, you don't realize that though. You don't realize yeah. that you're putting a lot of faith in this general contractor that you went and got a couple, let's say you get bitted out to three different general contractors. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what level I had to actually examine them Yeah, and understand th- what they do. The idea of that they can build it out oh, straightforward. It's a it's basically a residential build, wider hallways and doorways, you know? Okay, sure. That sounds good good. I guess I'll go with you. You know, mm-hmm. now what I've learned over the years of doing some of the, looking at some of these new development projects that have gone nowhere because of cost, I'm realizing you really got to dive into that GC, not look at kind of what their past projects were. That's important, but look at how they have relationships with other people, other vendors, stuff like that. Yeah. I would say is that my biggest thing for general contractors is maintain your relationships. Don't over promise and under deliver. Yeah. Over promise. No, no. What's the opposite? Whatever the Sorry. opposite is. Oh, under Promise and over deliver. Boom. Thank you. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, Alex and I try to press stress that every, you know, almost every episode. That's really where it's at. Yeah. You know, people, then you're, it's a pleasant surprise. It's a good surprise finally for people at the end of the day instead of, you know, a fire like we just kind of just talked about. Yes. Um, well, Francis, this has been awesome. Tell us what's in your future for you and your company. I mean, you are just in six years, man, 10 facilities. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so we're trying to, honestly, my big, my, my big desire to do would be do a village project. That's, that's my ultimate goal is somehow incorporate a a new approach to this village idea for seniors. Uh, I have some ideas on paper and stuff like that, but I think it's something that could be attainable. Um, and I think it would drive costs down. That's, that's the, probably the ultimate goal right now. We're obviously looking, you know, we're, we're talking with different, investors and groups that want to get in this space and they need operators because they, they, they understand the real estate space. And so we're definitely, you know, in discussions with coming in and operating for a couple of the more smaller kind of care model type environments. Um, and then we're looking out of state to see if our model could be applicable in you know, Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, more that middle of the country. Cause I feel like that homestead model, mm-hmm. it, it blends really well there. Uh, yeah. You, uh, well, you've been, you're inspiring, man. You're a go-getter. I, I, I just, like I said too, before we started podcasting that it was, I noticed you, I noticed you were, you know, very local on LinkedIn all of a sudden because you launched your podcast. Right. What is one of the reasons, right? Um, so it's been awesome. And I think if you did do your, your village concept, if you ever, if you ever got that off the ground, I think that would be shattering in the United States in a good way. I think it would be groundbreaking. I think people, I think it would be a great model for people to figure out. And yeah, I do. And I think it would start, begin to give people back their power because what I keep hearing is that I don't want to lose my independence even though I need assistance. I want to still be me. And I think sometimes we're forcing our seniors in these resort-style living, you know, these two, three, four-story apartment mm-hmm. structures that a lot of us haven't lived in. We're all used to single-family duplexes, you know, Communal living in the U.S. isn't as prevalent as Europe, right, or even Asia. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going from uh, used to living in our own kind of house to where we have to move in with a bunch of people. It's a little unique in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And so if we could find a way to build American-type living arrangement yet still offer care, I think that'll be more welcoming to more seniors. Yeah, I think you're onto something, buddy. I would yeah. love to. We, I think we'd love to collaborate with you in some I, way about that. Maybe, maybe it's just a case study. If we I, could ever find any free time to do it, that yeah. would be cool. No, I'd love to. Like I said, I have always, like I said, with your design work has been. You know, I've, I've followed it. You know, since we've been connected about you know six years ago, is you guys definitely are not afraid to push the envelope. And I think that's what's important is that, like you said, we have to. What I'm realizing is that my idea, of what architect was a few years ago, has changed drastically since I've been now really looking at moving forward 
and, and, you know, getting away from what I think is okay to doing something different, maybe not better, just different. Yeah. So I don't always, I don't want to say what we're doing is bad, but I want, I'm realizing that to push the envelope, we've got to actually do it, not talk about it. We've got to make things happen. And that's kind of what I'm realizing is that we can talk and talk all day, but you've got to just sometimes leap in and just do it. Exactly. As scary as it might be. As yeah. scary as it might be. Exactly. Yeah. And push through and do it and, yes. and finish it, right? Correct. I mean, you got to yeah. complete the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been a great conversation, Francis. Thanks again for coming up. Oh, Where absolutely. can people find you and follow you online? Yes. And, talk, and tell us about your podcast. Yeah. So our podcast is you can come find me at mavericksofseniorliving.com or at assuredassistedliving.com. Our podcast is called Challenging the Way We Age. And we bring and have discussions about technology and senior living. We talk with, uh, you know, people that are doing different things with brain scans. We, we really want to just see what those fringe creative people are doing in senior living and giving them a platform to talk about it. Because we always hear a lot about the stigma of aging, but we want to talk about the positive things that are occurring in that space. And there's a lot of new tech startup and health, you know, healthcare for seniors that are going on. So we want that to be a platform for what, uh, what we can do moving forward very cool thanks again for being on buddy thank you appreciate it lance it was fantastic all right